to This Academic Life, Episode 9. Hi, I'm Kim Michelle Lewis, Associate Dean of Research and Professor of Physics. Hi, I'm Pania Newell. I'm an Assistant Professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. Hi, I'm Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor in mechanical engineering. Well, welcome everyone. Today we'll be talking about numbers, numbers on salaries. All right, so this is always a taboo topic for many people, at least in the United States. So what is interesting about the salary is that if you look at AAUP, this is an organization for American professors, they do a reporting every 10 years on salary. And in the most recent one, in the 2018 to 2019 report, you will find that there is a full uh, spectrum of salary being reported that is surveyed among thousands of institutions in the United States. And the highest on the spectrum is the full professors at private independent doctoral universities. And the average salary for this group is $196,000 in salary. On the lower spectrum, that goes to assistant professors at religious colleges. And typically, they offer bachelor's degree. And the salary for this group is $61,000. So you can see that there's a wide spectrum of a salary out there for university professors. And you will also see that salaries for women for full-time positions continue to lag behind of those being paid to men. On average, women were paid 81.6% of the salary of men during the 2018 to 2019 academic year. This number is in fact an, an improvement from the previous report 10 years ago. And the differences uh, can be attributed to primarily unequal distribution uh, of employment between men and women. Yeah, so these are interesting numbers because when you look back at when the first female professor was hired, it was Harriet Cook that she was hired at Cornell University and her salary was equal to her male colleagues. It was back in 1866 that she was appointed to a college professor. And later on, she also started this Cornell Association for the Higher Education of Women, but probably she had other agenda in mind. But what has changed since then is that now we see this gender gap in universities? So I think it's important to explore, as Pania said, what has changed. So ladies, what do you think has changed between that time and 2021? I think that maybe the negotiation process was not as complex as what we are seeing now. Maybe there, it was more transparent back then. Maybe it was a fixed salary for whoever was appointed. And also, as Lucy pointed out, the number of women in academia now is almost 50-50 comparing to men. So that might also play a role because now there are more associations for women and there are more awareness regarding these gender gaps and also the increase in the number of women in academia might contribute inequity. 
So with that being said, do you ladies think that there should be an automatic equity raise and it shouldn't be something you need to advocate for or you need to show statistics about? I think first we need to really understand what equity raise means because we, you know, there's a merit base, which is all something that we're all very familiar of. And then there's inflation adjustments. Uh, you have to keep up with the inflation and equity raise is something different, right? So it's about a raise for equalizing salary among the, your pool of employees and Oftentimes, if you're staying in a place for too long, your adjustments or either merit-based or combination of merit-based and inflation-based salary increase cannot really keep up with the market. And someone that you hire currently might get a salary that's higher than someone who's been working there for 10 years. How do you make that equal, right? So that's where the equity raise would come from. You want to make it fair to at least to match the market. So that equity raise, I personally believe it should be there. In fact, it's very, it's a very common practice in a lot of other types of businesses and also government agencies. So there is a range of salary for particular title. So for example, like you earned this title, so you get promoted to this title, then the minimum is this and the maximum is this, right? So there is a range. So that say 10 years later, you get promoted, you're not gonna have a lower salary than some new hires. My point of view is that it should be there. I agree. I think that faculty in general, they have a lot in their mind and they should not every year or every other year or every five years fight for their salary and dig through this data to figure out that if they are getting paid less than their male colleagues or, you know, somebody else at their own bracket or their own group. And I think that similar to, I guess, what has been happening at MIT after the 1970s when they discovered this unfairness between female faculty versus male faculty, they started these associations or a group of people that they are handling those on their behalf. So, and it, it gives faculty and less a thing to be worried about. And I do like the points that Lucy brought up in many other government organizations or research institute, they have standard system. For instance, when I started working at the Department of Energy labs, I remember that during my interview for a postdoc on the second day, the hiring manager told me that your salary is going to be this amount of money. And I remember that I said that, well, I don't care about money. And he didn't even let me finish the sentence and he said that well Panya at some point you need to care about your salary too and I didn't understand what he really meant back then when I got converted to a full staff about a year and a half after that I remember my second hiring manager he said that he went to the HR and he fought to give me the highest salary within that bracket that I was being hired in but I don't see it in many universities when they do the hiring process 
process because it's more negotiation based that if you come with this amount of experience what would be your salary you have to fight for it and I think it would be really good if we have a system in place that's transparent and based on your experience based on your knowledge based on what you are bringing to the table not based on your gender your salary will be defined. So one thing I was thinking about is the culture and the taboo around talking about money, right? Because what would be helpful is if I can just ask, <laughs> if I can just ask my colleague, I'm negotiating for this new position, what's your current salary? Let's talk about what number I should ask for. But it's such a taboo. And I remember having close friends that I've known for years and it's still like, they won't say it, right? And and then at some point, we had a conversation. We all got together and we was like, look, this is what we're going to talk about tonight. <laughs> and there was some hesitation, but then we realized that it was a source of empowerment, right? We, we you know, everybody went around and we said, and it was like, really? Or really? Exactly. <laughs> and then we decided okay, I'm going to talk to my department chair tomorrow. I mean, and it was so, it gave us so much power. We were like, because now we have some facts that we can go in without disclosing who we talk to our colleagues. But I felt like I knew what I was worth having that discussion. And then they felt like they just helped somebody by saying this, instead of it being, I'm not gonna tell because then they're gonna judge me and this, that, and the other. And then we also realized in that discussion that some of us negotiated and some of us didn't. And there was no correlation to who got more money. So I felt like the person who was in power was the, the person who was leading the, the discussion for the negotiation. So if you're discussing or negotiating with your dean, then you know it could be that person that was really holding all the facts about what this person should get compared to their colleague, right? So I, I think we should talk more freely about it amongst people that we trust. I think that's very important. I remember watching a documentary called Picture the Scientist and the whole, I guess, movie was based on people started talking and and if they didn't talk, they wouldn't have known that such an issue exists because when one person went to the other one said that, you know, these are the things that I'm struggling with and the other one said, well, I'm struggling with the same thing too. And if they kept it uh, secret, the whole, I guess, whatever that happened back in the 1970s wouldn't have happened. So, so I I think that yeah, talking about it freely with people that we do trust, it can help them improving and overcoming some of these issues that they already exist. Yeah, knowledge is power, right? Because you don't have that knowledge, therefore you don't you don't even know what you're asking for. You know, in fact, I recently heard another podcast talking about salary transparency. The thing is, most people believe that they are underpaid. That's the perception, right? But in fact, you know, obviously only half of the people can be overpaid and half of the people be underpaid, right? So after finding out what everybody else make, you can say, 
oh, okay, I'm I'm not bad. I in fact I'm on the upper range. And then for the people who are underpaid, they can say, oh, okay, so I know what is the targeting number I should go after, right? So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of anxiety over that, but the amount of stress in terms of negotiation and not knowing is way outweigh that unknown. So what about experience, right? So this is another kind of issue that comes up when we talk about salaries. This is just hypothetical. You have two assistant professors that come in. What leverage do you have based on the experience between the two? So do I pay the assistant professor that came in with two years of postdoc experience, more money than assistant professor who came in directly out of graduate school. You know, should that weigh into it in any way? I've heard that sometimes this is used at different universities to justify why this person is making X amount of dollars over this person. So I sometimes get the feeling they want some wiggle room to take into account the levels of experience between the pay. What do you guys think about that? You think it's it's overdone or it's underdone? What are your thoughts? I've seen both. I think that that's why we need to have a bracket for each assistant professor, associate, and then full professor. Not everybody starts getting paid at X amount. So uh, I think experience should play a role. Obviously, somebody who has three years of postdoc with a stronger publication record should not be hired in with the same exact salary as somebody who comes fresh from PhD and less publications and just put them because their title is assistant professor, they should all get the same amount of money. I personally think it should play a role. However, I've seen cases that they, for whatever reason, somebody with the experience got hired in with much lower salary with somebody who came fresh from PhD. So I think there are different institute and different mindset, and that's why we need transparency. The same thing here. When I interviewed after Tulane Engineering School was closed, I went for 14 interviews. And I've seen a lot of these universities say, yeah, you did three years at Tulane as a, as a professor already, but you know, we'll just kind of treat it as a postdoc. You're gonna be hired as a fresh, brand new professor. But some universities do take that into account and they say, well, you did work already, so you published over there, you, you, you were productive over there, so that experience do count into your starting salary. And, you know, the negotiating, not necessarily negotiation, but th they would automatically put that into their formula, quote-unquote formula. For me, I was very fortunate when I came to RPI, my department chair at the time, we didn't talk about numbers until the very end of the interview. And he just said, Lucy, don't worry about it. I'm going to do the best I can. So he just went and I don't even know <laughs> if he had to talk to the dean provost and the president or I don't know whom he had to talk to, but he got the number for me and I was happy about. I didn't do any negotiations. He said he would do that for me. He put his, himself out there and I really appreciate it, you know, and along with 
other startup package and everything. I just thought that was, for me, that that just called home, right? Because he cared. I wasn't even there yet, but he cared. So I came here. That's what matters because I think that those people that they get hired in with the lower salary, at some point we start writing proposals. All of these are, uh, if you are not at private schools, these are public information. You can easily figure out that how much your colleagues they are making by writing joint proposals or other uh, ways. And those that they come with experience and they get hired in with the lower salary than their colleagues, then they feel betrayed and they feel that they are less valued or they feel that you know their department doesn't care about them and in long term they may end up leaving uh, and it doesn't matter how good they are so I think that that's why Lucy brought up a really good point and it goes back to to the uh, hiring managers that I had at the DOE that he told me that at some point you need to care and but he was really transparent uh, and also the second uh, hiring manager he went and he negotiated on my behalf without me being involved so if you have that trust person or you know your chair your dean or whoever that they are involved with the hiring process they are pushing for the best starting salary for you that means that you would stay loyal to them and you would stay there as long as you can yeah so just to wrap up one point when you do negotiate with someone you trust and then you feel that they are being fair in the starting salary one thing that i found was that when the focus is off of that you can now negotiate what it is you came to do for this job now I, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let me talk about how much space I need for my research because this is the real reason I wanted to become a faculty member. I wanted to do research. How many students, this is how many students I need. I felt so much more vocal. Once the salary was off the table and I felt that they were being fair, I really was able to negotiate what it was that I needed to help me succeed, to help me get past the tenure hurdle and become an associate professor or become a full professor. And what I found when I spoke to faculty members who were so caught up in the starting salary number that once they got into the position, they would call me and say, Kim, I forgot to ask for a postdoc. I forgot to ask for a summer salary. And I'm like, and you, you're cringing because they realize that these are also very important things because without those things, you may not make it to an associate professor. So having that anxiety removed, knowing that, hey, the salary's off this table, now let me get to the crux of my job. I think it's, it's really the direction we need to move into. That's absolutely right, Kim. Absolutely right. Because that's the focus if you put that as the center of negotiation, you put salary as the center of negotiation, you're losing bigger picture. That's really something that all of us need to work on. Do I agree with both of you? I think that in the long run, it would increase your research productivity, your teaching. You become a better researcher, better teacher, because you know that your department or your school or your college, they value you. Right. I recall that we had a discussion about when people are underpaid or overpaid and, and that person who's leading the negotiation, right, who gets to decide what number gets written in the offer letter, 
we jokingly said, how does that person sleep at night? <laughs> knowing that they just lowballed this faculty member or knowing that they're overpaying this faculty member that is creating a huge gap between their colleagues. How do they sleep at night? And you know, we talked about it jokingly, but I, I think I sometimes feel uncomfortable because I'm like, how are they able to sleep? And why am I not able to sleep? <laughs> you know, like what's the difference? What's the mindset? And I don't know if it's because of cultural experience or the way my family raised me or the fact that I'm a Libra and I want everything to be well balanced. Like what is it that allows them to, to make those decisions knowing that there's a inequity in those salaries? Like, like, I feel like the three of us wouldn't be able to sleep. Like, Panya would be calling me every 10 minutes like, oh, my God, what did I do? Like, it would just be a very trying experience for us to, in good conscience, do that. So what are your thoughts about that? Are we just a minority, air quotes, in this situation? And we just haven't built up something? Or do we even need that something? Do we want to have that something? That's my question. I personally think the first time maybe they have hard time sleeping, then the second time they do it and it's like, oh, okay, this is not that bad. Then the third time. So they've done it so many times that now they don't care. And it's like, I remember that once it was really shocking for me. I don't remember how many years ago, but it was on 60 Minute that they were interviewing this baseball player that he used drugs to enhance his body to, to win a game. And they were interviewing him and he said, everybody's doing it. It's, it was done, and I, if you don't do it, you are the loser. So I think this is kind of a norm. And I think that they see that, well, if I don't do it, I'm going to look bad or, you know. Also, I do believe that some people, they've lost their integrity over their jobs, and that's more important. They care more about power and many other things. But I think, as you said, the way that you've been raised, it plays a role and how many times you've done it and if whether you are sticking to your value and have some virtues that you are following. And that's a hard thing to do, right? I've never been an administrator. I would think because you're managing so many people and so different, everybody's so different, different backgrounds, different experiences, I can imagine that it's a hard decision to make, but for I'm I'm guessing for them it's also learning experience. By the time you learn it all, you're just so immune to this whole process. You don't, well, you know, doesn't matter. <laughs> Become numb after a few <laughs> times doing it. It's like okay, exactly, exactly, because that's the way it is. You can't do your job otherwise. I would think. Right, because if you want to do your job, then you better learn it to get used to it. I, I would think that's that's really the way it is. Right, and in fairness, the administrators do have a budget constraint. So we do need to understand that they do have some upper bound, right? You know, earlier we were talking about brackets, right? So a range salary range for, you know, different levels, say from assistant, when you get promoted to associate, you should have another bracket. Well, the thing is, STEM fields in general get paid a little bit more than some other majors, such as 
humanities and liberal arts, for example. So there, naturally, the market calls for that disparity. So if you do like a university level, you know, bracket, it might not work. <laughs> you can try to implement it, but it might not work. So, you know, how down the level do we want to define that bracket? You know, that's another level of complexity. You know, I'm not an administrator, uh, thank goodness, but I, I can't, I think it's a very difficult thing to implement and execute to even plan. <laughs> All right. I think we've talked about this topic for quite a bit. We don't have a solution for everything, but we do believe that administrators can take a more aggressive approach in setting up a more uniform guidance for salary, such as salary brackets for different ranks in order to make salary more equal and more fair. And this is particularly important for junior faculty who are starting out where they want to put more of their focus during the negotiation process on the things that are more important in making a path that will lead to their career success. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Find us at thisacademiclife.org or follow us on Facebook. You can listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. Please rate us. We welcome any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.